0: Welcome! You are listening to Park Avenue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat shalom. As I read the news of Amnesty International's latest report Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians, I could not help but note the irony that I was doing so on Groundhog Day. It all felt so very familiar. We've seen this situation before time and again. I've only read the executive summary, not all 280 pages, but for the purposes of this morning, the full flavor is captured in the report's slasher film subtitle, Cruel System of Domination and Crime Against Humanity. This report, the UN 75 resolution, not Zionism is racism, the Goldstone report, The Durban Conference, a Human Rights Watch report following last May's Gaza conflict, yet another lopsided indictment of Israel. In the Cosgrove household, the best response came from my wife when I asked her if she was shocked by the report and its sensationalist and one-sided claims against Israel. She turned to me quizzically and asked, Elliot, are you really surprised? What exactly did you think amnesty was going to say? I conceded to her then, as always, that she was right. This latest amnesty report, just another instance in a decades-long drumbeat of anti-Israel sentiment emanating from the halls of the UN and other international human rights NGOs. Over the last few days, I've thought long and hard about whether to speak to you about the report. For the most part, I try not to turn this pulpit into political theater. Those of you who are here physically and virtually are here for spiritual uplift for connection to tradition and community. I know that you know where to go if you want a briefing from the ADL, APAC, or J Street. I try to stay in my lane and believe it to be beneath both my dignity and yours to use this sacred time and space to say something that's already being said in any number of op-eds. Besides, as I noted, I wondered if there was anything actually new or newsy about the report. And if not, by speaking about it today, am I not somehow abetting Israel's detractors by feeding it oxygen and breathing life into it? I remember once learning the mistake of answering loaded questions like, when did you stop beating your wife? There's no good answer. The assumptions of your opponent are already built into their very questions. They've already defined the territory of the debate. And even if you rebut their claims, they've won. Cosgrove, leave it alone. Don't engage. Stick to the Torah reading. Do you really want people to Google the words Cosgrove, Israel, and apartheid and have your name come up? And yet, having given voice to my concerns... I want to turn to the subject matter at hand. I do so because for me, Israel is part and parcel to my Jewish identity. It's central to my vision of the rabbinate. And as long as I'm the rabbi of Park Avenue, it will remain central to the mission of this synagogue. I want you, your children, your grandchildren, to keep kosher, to observe Shabbat, to create Jewish families, to do all sorts of things. Including to live proudly as Zionists. None of us chose to live in this miraculous era of a sovereign Jewish state, where after thousands of years of exiles, Jews have the right to national self determination. But we do, which for me means that to be Jewish today means to be actively engaged with Israel, regardless of whether the claims of amnesty are actually new. To fail to address those claims strikes me as an abdication of my role as a Jewish educator. In the most personal terms, I'm not just a rabbi, but I'm the father of four children, some on campus, some imminently so. For my children, for your children, as an institution of Jewish education, we must provide the tools to contend with the claims of the amnesty report and the like. As the prophet Isaiah spoke, for Zion's sake, I dare not keep silent. By my reading, the substance of the report is guilty of both sins of commission and omission. Its lack of acknowledgement of the Jewish people's historic claim to the land betrays a bias that colors every other claim it makes. After all, if the Jews have no right to the land, then Israel is a national project conceived in sin, its very creation an act of dispossession. The tell sign of the report is its repeated reference to Israel's misdeeds since its creation in 1948. This isn't a report limiting itself to a post-67 dispute over the West Bank and Gaza. This is an attack on Israel's very right to exist. There's no mention, none, of Arab rejectionism, of Hamas, of Hezbollah, of Iran, of Palestinian terrorism of any kind, of Israel's right to defend its citizenry, which last time I checked is the first duty of any nation. To describe Israel as an apartheid state is both deeply inflammatory and inaccurate. As Michael Koplow of the Israel Policy Forum explained, unlike the South African example, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, tragic as it may be, is about territory, not race. Two sides fighting to establish their own national identities on the same plot of land. Distinctions amongst Palestinians are about geography, not race. Israeli Arabs vote hold office, form political parties, and exercise democratic rights in Israel in a way that they don't in other Arab countries. As for Jews, even Whoopi Goldberg is saying that we are not and have never been a race. The very language of apartheid, again to cite Kaplow, is not only wrong, but it's a rhetorical shortcut meant as clickbait for the feeding frenzy of Israel's detractors wherever they may be. I am not one, and I'm going to return to this point momentarily, to use the term anti-Semitism lightly. Criticism of Israel is altogether legitimate. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't point out that Amnesty's singular focus on Israel, and not, say, China, Venezuela, and other rogue states actively engaging in crimes against humanity, at least begs the question of a glaring double standard one of both Sharansky's and IHRA's thresholds for anti-Semitism. One is only left to wonder what the intent of this report is that delegitimizes the right of Jews to sovereignty, denies them the right to self-defense, and extends the web of their misdeeds beyond a territorial dispute to a crime against all of humanity. There's more to say on the substance. And I'm sure you have questions, which is why I invite you and your children to sign up for Rabbi Zuckerman's dialogue with Coplo on Tuesday evening, and I'll be speaking to the teens about it this afternoon. But what pains me is not just any single claim, but rather just how deeply unproductive the report is. In the days since the report, the two sides of world opinion have gone to the mattresses with op-eds, email blasts, fundraising pitches, and emergency conference calls. For Israel's opponents, the report serves as a respectable hook upon which to hang their beliefs, and if more nefarious, to provide genteel cover to their anti-Jewish hatreds. For Israel's defenders, this report has shifted everyone into a defensive posture and thus excuse any of Israel's actual misdeeds. I have all sorts of criticisms of Israel, its systematic and ongoing restrictions of Palestinian rights, its repeated actions impeding Palestinian sovereignty, most recently the illegal outpost on Eviatar, Israel's inability to house liberal expressions of Jewish life, most recently the collapse of the Kotel deal. But today, I'm not giving full voice to any of those criticisms. Because, well, when a family member is attacked from the outside, that's not what one does. The consequences of the amnesty report is that it's hardened everyone's positions, to step back from peace, letting the Palestinians and Israelis off the hook for their roles in the conflict and their role in resolving it. Whatever amnesty's intent may have been, I believe this report will make it harder, not easier, to resolve the very conflict that every caring person wants so desperately resolved. You know, this week, I had occasion to read Erica Brown's latest leadership piece in Sapir. Great journal. I hope it's not long before we welcome her back into the community. Brown writes about what she calls the importance of long-haul heroes, people who are able to lean in, even when it is hard and defeating, even when there's no end in sight, even when the goal may be within, not be within his or her lifetime. It's not that we don't have leaders, Brown writes, we do, but they tend to be short-sighted, pugilistic, aimed at the quick win, targeting the symptom, not the underlying cause. Moses was a long-haul hero. As evidenced by today's Torah reading, And the next one, and the next one, and the one after that, the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was going to be a long and arduous process, but it was introduced by way of a guiding north star. Make for me a sanctuary capable of housing God's presence. All the details, all the materials, all the instructions in the midst of the desert, not to mention the setback of the golden calf, a sanctuary capable of housing God's presence, which is what, eventually, under Moses' leadership, the Israelites would do, formulating a shared vision, constructing a path to get there, sticking to it no matter what. That's what sustained Israel, sustained our people, and frankly, all peoples throughout the generations. Brown's article is not about the Middle East, but it did get me thinking. I began to wonder, what if I was the head of amnesty? What sort of report would I want to have seen produced? What would that long-haul vision look like? a vision that brought the two sides closer, not further apart, a vision where positions were softened, not hardened. Well, to begin with, it would be a report that began by stating the right of both Israelis and Palestinians to a homeland and national self-determination. It would then call on the leadership of both countries to speak to their citizenry, to speak to the world, and most of all, to educate their children in a manner that predisposed everyone towards achieving that outcome, a shared aspirational language of peace for all. It would be a report that condemned violence of all kinds and insisted on the vigilant protection of human rights and the right of countries to defend themselves. It would be a report that roundly condemned any action that precluded Israeli-Palestinian coexistence. It would be a report that allowed for people in the Middle East and beyond to freely express their opinions on how to work towards said vision without being labeled a colonialist, a collaborator, a self-hating Zionist, or an anti-Semite. A conversation and process that saw dissent and difference as a sign of strength, not as betrayal. That for a Jew to voice criticism against Israeli leadership makes one no less a Zionist than criticism of America makes one any less patriotic, and likewise amongst Palestinians. It would be a report that avoids facile comparisons and inflammatory language. It would be a report that makes clear that that while there have been missteps along the way on all sides, the future has yet to be written, and in order to move forward, we need to learn to let go of the past. It would be a report that shared the quiet truth that peace will only be achieved if everybody is prepared to let go of something that nobody in this world gets everything they want and that compromise is an essential ingredient to building shared society. A report that would make everyone a bit uncomfortable in the hard truths it shares, but a document nonetheless that we could all use as a starting point for our conversations and our commitment to peace. Show me that report, Amnesty. Defend that. Celebrate that in your classrooms and just tell me where and when, and I'll show up and invite my entire congregation to do the same. As with all long-haul visions, the emergent blueprint is a reflection not of any one mind, amnesty's mind, yours, or any single individual. Rabbi Art Green notes the curious phrasing of God's instructions to Israel this week to build the Mishkan, to create a vision that I will show you using the Hebrew word otcha rather than the expected lecha, Green explains the grammar signals that the vision begins not with God, but with every Israelite. In other words, a blueprint for God's sanctuary is a reflection of a shared vision of all the souls that are present. For dreams to come true, we must all look inward and imagine the outcome it is that we desire. And it's at that point, with a dose of humility, that we must edge out of our comfort zone and recognize that our vision has to coexist with the vision of others, with love, not hate, with generosity, not cynicism, with humility, not sensationalism. We then build trust and we work towards mapping out that shared vision, different than our own, but capable of living side-by-side shalem, whole and at peace with the visions of others. We may not see its fulfillment in our lifetimes, but we will be comforted in the knowledge that our own actions, modest though they may be, have brought us one step closer to creating a world worthy of God's presence. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.